because there are some things that the private companies are going to be able to do better and faster but there are lots of key challenges on the way to fusion and this is probably a place where public funded labs have expertise and you know can really solve some of these key challenges that can then feed into the private companies Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week is a crossover podcast between ASP's Flashpoint and the Fusion Industry Association. As some of you know, I'm both the Chief Operating Officer of the American Security Project and the Executive Director of the Fusion Industry Association. We're going to be cross-posting this podcast on both streams. This week's discussion is with Melanie Windridge, who's the Director of Communications and the Director for UK Operations of the Fusion Industry Association. She's also a consultant for FIA member company Tokamak Energy. She wrote the book, Star Chambers, The Race for Fusion Power, which she's just updated now 10 years after giving the lectures that were the basis for the book. In our discussion, we talk about the seismic changes in fusion energy research over those 10 years, most particularly in the emergence of private industry and private investment. We're both optimistic that fusion will have an important part to play in the fight against climate change, and we outline some of the ways forward to get there. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Now let's get into the show. Melanie Windridge, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Melanie, you originally published your book, Star Chambers, The Race for Fusion Power, in 2012. But last year, you updated the book nearly 10 years later. What has changed in that, those 10 years that you felt like you needed to update it? Well. The biggest thing that's changed is the private companies and the number of private companies that are coming into the space. But I should probably tell you a little bit about like why I wrote the book in the first place and the reason it was 10 years ago, because it's actually based on a collection of blog posts that I wrote when I was I was doing something in England called the Institute of Physics Schools and Colleges Lecture Tour. And so I spent the whole of 2010 traveling around the country talking to schools about fusion energy. And so I must have gone to, I think they organized about 30 schools, but I got lots of other requests. So I probably went to about 50 schools in 2010. Wow. And I was telling them about fusion energy. And that's because I just finished my PhD by that point. And I'd done my PhD at the Cullum Center for Fusion Energy, which is the, the main publicly funded fusion lab in the UK. It's where there's a, a tokamak called JET, which is a very well-known um, European tokamak that does international research, and then also a spherical tokamak called MAST, which is what mm -hmm. I worked on for my PhD. So that's that was my background in fusion. And so I went around the country talking to schools about fusion, and I was just really keen on communication. So I decided that alongside that, I would I'd write these blog posts, so one, one a month every time I went off on a little mini part of the tour, and I would break down the story of fusion and to put it out on the blog. And so at the end of that, I collected it all together and added some extra information about different tokamaks around the world and a ch chapter about laser fusion as well and packaged it up and brought it out as a book. So that's why the book itself came out in 2012, but it was actually based on blogs that were written right. in 2010. So that's why last year it was kind of the 10 year anniversary right. of the original blogs. And as I said, the, the most exciting thing, I think for me that's changed is, is the private industry. Because when I was writing these blogs and when I was traveling around the country, like all I knew about 
was the publicly funded labs. Mm -hmm. As I said, I did my PhD in one. All the talk was about ITER, and which is the next step, like big tokamak that's being built in France. And so that was kind of all I knew about. There were a couple of startups in existence, but you didn't really hear much about them back then. And uh, that's changed a lot in the last 10 years. And, and yeah. now we've got maybe you know over 20 in North America and Europe and mm -hmm. it's growing fast. And that to me is really hopeful because it shows that there is a will to get fusion done and that people are actually investing in this. Yeah, so the, the Fusion Industry Association, which you and I are both involved in, obviously, there's 22 member companies, and we know that there's probably a few more out there that are moving forward, and nearly all of them are came out in that decade. So it is really a good news story and, a, and kind of a surprising thing, probably looking back to 2010. This really wasn't a, something that people saw on the horizon, right? Yeah, I think they were, private companies were viewed quite differently as well. Like there was a lot of skepticism, I think, at the beginning. And so it's taken a lot, a lot of work for companies to prove themselves. Uh, I work as a consultant for a private company, Tokamak Energy, as well. And definitely it took uh, several years to like build up that credibility and show that like well, the company really was building real tokamaks and achieving like real results. And it wasn't just you know, some, some crazy idea. So what is the, the technology that you've seen and the technology development that you've seen in this time that has really validated the startups and the private companies in this space? Why, why is it that suddenly they're on the scene and are developing and showing results and raising capital? I think that there's a range of things that can contribute. And you, we see startups in different areas, or rather there are different approaches to achieving fusion. Mm -hmm. uh, we are very familiar with like the mainstream ones are tokamaks in magnetic confinement fusion and lasers for inertial confinement fusion. Those were like the mainstream publicly funded research tracks. And, but as, and we do have some private companies that are researching those concepts, but there are lots of other approaches that are being tried as well. So some of these are, if they worked, would give the possibility of making like smaller uh, cheaper mm -hmm. machines, which would be really useful. Some of the, like the tokamaks, especially pretty big machines, even, even the companies that want to make smaller tokamaks, they're still going to be pretty big machines. Yeah. Uh, so anything that can reduce the size would be, would be very welcome. Uh, so there are, yeah, there are different approaches, but even on the mainstream approaches like tokamak, there have been changes that are, or, or rather new technologies coming in that are, that are making things more possible, shall we say. So a key technology is high temperature superconductors. So these are superconductors have zero resistance if you put a current through them. So unlike the filament of a light bulb or a toaster, something that heats up when you put a current through it, a superconductor doesn't. And right. that means that ultimately it means that current can keep flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing without the material heating up. So you can use it for, to make magnets, electromagnets, that can keep running continuously. And so that's a really key thing for magnetic confinement fusion because you need to have a, a magnetic field to trap your fusion fuel and you need to keep it running continuously. So, uh, and these high temperature superconductors are a, a type of superconductor that can operate at 
higher temperatures, still cold, but higher. So you can get maybe a fivefold energy saving in terms of cooling. But more importantly, you can produce higher magnetic fields. And that means that you can make better traps for your fusion fuel. And so this is a key enabling technology for making more efficient and maybe smaller tokamak power plants as well. So that's an important technology. But there are also changes like um, things like computing power, like high performance computing, artificial intelligence. This is changing the kind of possibilities we have for studying things that are as complex as plasmas, fusion plasmas. And so that's really um, you know, enabling us to learn how to better control our plasmas or to optimize designs. So there have been a lot of changes in even the last 10 years, but certainly in the last, let's say, 2030, since the ETA tokamak was designed. And these changes can improve things and, and allow us to make more economical fusion machines. And that's why private companies are getting involved. That's kind of the key difference between the ETA design, which, as you said, is basically the design from 20, 30 years ago. And so now that you have companies moving at the speed of private industry, designing and building with the latest materials, these high temperature superconductors, the private companies who are going on that path think that, that they can do it faster, cheaper, and on a pathway that's more appropriate for a commercializable power plant, right? Yes, and that's the key thing you, you say there, a commercializable power plant. It's not just a science project. It can't just be a science project. Like these private companies are coming at it like from a business perspective. And this is really important because like ultimately these uh, machines, whatever gets made needs to be competitive, needs to be economical. And so we need to understand or, or figure out what technologies we can bring in to, uh, to make these things more economical, whether that's reducing size or improving efficiency or whatever it happens to be. We have to find ways to tackle that and, and make, thing, make it more economical. Yeah, so I mean, everybody in the science community, of course, expects ETER to work and to produce some really great science, right, on, on what a burning plasma looks like and how it will go. Yes, and ITER is an incredible feat of engineering. And yeah. you have to remember as well that like all of the, for the people, the private companies rather, who are working with tokamaks, they're building on all that research, decades of research that's gone into ITER. So you can never say that it's a wasted project totally. because they wouldn't be where they are now without all the research that's gone into ETA and JET and, and other tokamaks. But yeah, ultimately, it's it, it was designed 30 years ago. It's a huge machine and um, it will be, as I said, an incredible feat of engineering. But we need to do things smaller <laughs> if we're going to uh, if we're going to commercialize fusion. You have to bring that size down. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, we see it. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it's interesting if you um, like historically you can see why these machines got bigger and bigger because the fusion power that you get out is related to a parameter called beta, which is basically the efficiency of the machine. And then also the magnetic field and then the size of the machine. The magnetic field actually has the most influence and then the efficiency of the machine and then the size. But so if you increase any one of those three things, you can increase the fusion power that you get out. So historically, the efficiency of the machine with their designs was pretty much fixed. And the magnetic field is the expensive part of the machine to create. And so that was pretty much fixed. And the easiest thing to improve in, increase was the, the size or the volume of the machine. So historically, that's why the machines got bigger and bigger and bigger. As I mentioned before, if we can change any of those other parameters, the efficiency or the magnetic field, then we don't need to increase the size so much. 
and and that's so that's what what people are trying to do so commonwealth fusion systems right. and tokamak energy are both working with high temperature superconductors which will really increase the magnetic field tokamak energy is also working with spherical tokamaks which increases the efficiency of the machine so these are ways that we can uh, increase the fusion power we can get out without having to make the machines bigger and bigger and bigger so it's very hopeful yeah and as you you mentioned too uh, a number of our other companies are also built out of the government fusion programs. And, and we had this, this interesting thing that there was research into the, done into a number of these directions on, on fusion, but then as the government programs kind of focused in on the tokamak pathway, they left other, these other ones on the cutting room floor. So we things like CT fusion, TAE energy, general fusion even, were designs that were originally researched in the government program. So the government research is tightly tied in with commercialization. And, and this is something that, that we've seen in other technologies as well. Government research is invaluable. It's incredibly important. But at some point, it does have to move into, into the market. Yeah, you're quite right. And the, the, the historical part that you mentioned is very true. And so there are some people, like including the, the new startups, who say that some of those designs that were thrown out at like the end of the 70s, when a lot of the fusion funding was cut, didn't get a fair hearing, if you like, you know, they didn't really get to properly be investigated, yeah. uh, because the government's just just restricted the funding to the tokamaks or the laser fusion pathways. So, so that's really interesting to investigate, because if we find out more about those concepts, then they're going to enrich the entire fusion field from their findings. Uh, so, so that part of it is really important. But like you say, it's also, it's really important to, to shift to like a, a commercialization mission for the governments. And I think now is a critical time when the governments and public lab and private industry, we all need to figure out like how to work together to push towards commercialization. Because I think, so when we talk about what's changed in the last 10 years, and I say, well, a lot of the private companies have come up, that's true. But to start with, there was a bit of an us and them about the private companies right. and the public labs. And I think we're getting to a stage now where they're beginning to come together and collaborate. I mean, there's been a lot of good work in, in the US. You can talk about with the FISAC project, uh, FISAC paper or mm -hmm. report, I think it's called, and with, with the community coming together. But we really need to figure out now how, how the government labs and the private industry can work together to really drive forward towards commercialization because there are some things that the private companies are going to be able to do better and faster but there are lots of key challenges on the way to fusion and this is probably a place where public funded labs have expertise and you know can really solve some of these key challenges that can then feed into the private companies so i think this is really important like how we work together over the next decade is going to be key yeah exactly right you know i first got involved in fusion in 2011 so about decade ago as well. And at that time, and for the first five or six years of, of me working in this space, there was this very clear designation within the Department of Energy of, we are in the Office of Science and we do science. We do not have an energy mission. We are not here to do fusion energy. We're here to do plasma science and we're here to, to understand basic plasma science. And that's evolved over the last several years and notably, you mentioned the FISAC report. Within that and within the community planning process, there was a very definite change from, we are not here to do science, 
we, we have an energy mission. Of course, they're going to continue to do their discovery science and, and continue to work on that. But to have an energy mission with the end goal of developing fusion energy, it's a, it's a really notable change. And it allows a whole range of other things, research and development programs within the government program that can support this commercialization pathway. It, it is really important. And I think something that just wasn't there before. Yeah, it's really encouraging to see it, but it is gonna take a little bit of time to shift because like you say that the, the government's departments like may not even be like structured in, in no. the way that we need it to be. Like for example, in the UK, Fusion still sits within that yeah, science project like side you know it's not in the kind of like energy or business commercialization side yet it's still under the science projects and so like how we start well it's not for us but like how the government start making that transition and then how how they empower the public labs to work with private industry is is really important well and that that gets to an important point too so in the u.s system there was a reorganization back in the 1990s where fusion funding used to be in the same kind of box in government funding as renewable energy, clean energy funding. So every year, fusion people would have to compete for funding with solar, with wind, and that sort of stuff. And honestly, they were losing. So that competition was not working for fusion, and it was just not on the right right pathway. And so they separated it and put it in the science bucket versus the the renewable and and energy efficiency bucket. But now as we're, we're going back towards this applied program instead of a, a research program, it is going to take some time to get the people, get the bureaucracy tuned up and ready to go into thinking about an applied program and, and everything like that. Notably, you know, Congress has passed legislation now calling for an applied program, calling for a public-private partnership in DOE. They're hiring somebody to host that, that sort of stuff. So there are green shoots, and it, it's going to be interesting to see, see where this goes. But I guess my question for you is, you know, as Fusion moves into this commercialization pathway and, and we start to see uh, developments and commercialization, how do you see Fusion playing in the, the broader energy market? You know, in 10 years... We're not sure what the energy market's going to look like, but we think there's going to be a lot more renewable power, that sort of stuff. How, how do you see fusion as, as playing in that space? I think that's a really interesting question, uh, because in some ways, I think there's a, like a misconception that we don't really need fusion anymore because we've got renewables. And so mm -hmm. the climate change problem is solved. And I think it's, you know, it's great that we've got renewables and that we yeah. should use everything that we have. But I don't think it's, it's enough. And it's not just me who doesn't think it's enough. I mean, I think it's there is evidence that shows yeah. that, that it's not enough, not because they're not able to produce enough energy, because I suppose if you put like you know, millions of solar panels in the desert, then you can get quite a lot of, of energy. But you know, how you transmit it around is subject to inefficiencies. Obviously, the storage is a problem. Um, but even if they solved like some of those problems, it's still 100% renewable grids are not going to be economical because you'd have to build in so much redundancy. Right. Uh, there's evidence that, that shows that now. So there's always in, in the electricity market only, there's going to be a need for something else. So that means that fusion would be competing with, not with renewables, but with other like baseload providers. Yeah. So things firm like gas with power, right? Yeah. yeah, firm sources of power. So gas with carbon capture and storage or nuclear fission. Those are kind of the main ones, really. But what I think is important to remember as well is that electricity only accounts for something like I think it's just under twenty percent 
of the energy market. There's a huge right. amount of energy that we use, which us isn't electricity. And we seem to spend all of our time talking about electricity and how we've solved the problem because like we've got renewables covering electricity, but there's a huge amount that's really difficult to decarbonize. And fusion can play a big role here because fusion produces heat yeah. and that heat can be used for various things. It can be used to drive turbines and make electricity, but it can also be used for industrial processes which, which use a lot of energy. Um, it could also be used to create sustainable fuels, things like hydrogen, ammonia. And if we can produce fuels for aviation and shipping, then that will that's what's needed to really clean up to, to combat climate change. Right. Because um, if you think about, if people want to meet their targets, their like 2050 climate targets, that means we've got to like stop flying. I mean, I'm not even joking. Like if we really want to hit our target, we've really got to curb our lifestyles. And I just don't believe that that's going to happen. And so that means like we we really have to find some way of keeping our lifestyles. And that means we need energy. And that's where fusion fits. Yeah. It allows us to, to go towards what we could kind of call a high energy future instead of a low energy status quo keep us at the same level if you're doing everything by efficiency and and by renewables you can keep everything the same but people are going to want not only going to want to continue to fly they're going to want to fly more and they're going to want to use energy for more so if we can get energy out in large amounts at low cost it enables you to do so much more that maybe you, you we're not doing now you know you you mentioned sustainable fuels and and everything like that so it's like it's not that you're going to be powering your car with a fusion reactor in the back seat. It's going to be that the fuel that powers the car, whether it's electricity or hydrogen or or anything else, could be created using fusion power. And it's important because it's not just our lifestyles that need maintaining. It's also the developing world like is increasing theirs and they need that. They need to improve their lifestyles and also populations increasing. So energy demands are always rising. And actually it's quite depressing. If you look at like the growth in renewables, great, it's really impressive. But if you look at the growth in energy demand, it's about the same. So we've still got the same gap that we had 20 years ago, just because of the amount of energy we're using is increasing. So it's a huge opportunity financially as well for for people getting into fusion. That's exactly right too. You know, the the energy market we forget is is huge. Here in the United States, energy is a $1 trillion per year market. You know, that's all sorts of energy, whether it's gasoline or electricity or industrial processes. And and around the world, it's even more. You look at, obviously, the growth in China and the Asian tigers, their growth, but you're going to see even more of it coming in places like India, Africa, other developing countries. And there is this tension where we in the developed world are telling them, oh, you you can't grow the way we did. And they say that's unfair. You know, we want we want cheap power, and we're going to get it from coal, and we're going to grow, and then we're going to become clean. But the numbers on climate change just don't work. If you do that, then you're gonna it's game over for the climate. So we need something that can meet those huge power demands in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, it's 2021 now, 
that means 2050, where, where the Paris target is of 50% global reduction, means that we got to be going really, really fast to be able to get there. Yeah, it's going to be a huge challenge. But <laughs> I also think, and this might be crazily optimistic, but like, I, I feel that we need more, or maybe not, maybe pessimistic is the right way of looking at it, but like, I feel that we're going to need more than what we can provide energy-wise. I feel that we're going to need to actively scrub CO2 out of the atmosphere. And of course, people are planting trees to help do that, but like, maybe we'll need more. Maybe we'll need some kind of you know, scrubbing activity that actually sucks in CO2 and transforms it. And if we do, if we can invent those kind of processes, it's going to need energy. Yeah. <laughs> and so maybe, maybe fusion will one day be powering like scrubbers of the future to actually remove CO2 out of the atmosphere. And like, I kind of believe that that might be like the only thing that's like ultimately going to help us meet the, you know, get to the levels that we need to get to. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's it's pessimistic in, in the sense that we're not going to, I don't think we're going to meet our near-term targets, but in, in the longer term, we should be optimistic that that we will develop technology. You know, fusion, of course, is is one of, of many of these zero carbon ways forward, but I think the most, you know, optimistic one for the long term. And all of us in the fusion space have heard 30 years away and always will be, but it's just not true anymore, is it? I certainly hope not. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, this is something like if we go back to what we were talking about right at the beginning and like yeah. writing that book, when I was working on my PhD, as I said, I, that all I knew at the time was public funded labs like JET and, and ETA Tokamaks. And, and people were talking about ETA. And I remember at the beginning of my PhD, really like enthusiastic and keen and be like, yeah, okay, so Fusion's 30 years away. And by the end of my PhD, I remember thinking, huh, Fusion's not 26, 27 years away now. I mean, it's still 30 years away or even more because by that point, ETA had been like delayed and it's like maybe it's even 40 years away, which is really depressing. And, and so for me personally, the private industry has really given me hope you know, to think actually maybe that stupid old joke is just a stupid old joke and maybe we can get there. And of course, it's going to be challenging and of course it's really hard to predict the time scales because this is science this is an exploration and we're doing something that's never been done before which is exciting but impossible to predict but yeah I, I truly believe that it won't always be 30 years away and that we we will have fusion and I also think that for the people who say oh well fusion's now going to come too late for us to meet our climate targets so we might as well not bother I think that's a really uh, short-sighted argument because like we've just been discussing, energy demands are, are only going to rise and we're probably not going to meet our carbon targets. Right. So we have to research right now, like everything we possibly can. And if we can get fusion almost like to a stage where we can start rolling out in the 2030s, that's going to start making a tremendous impact. And then if we can start scrubbing CO2 out of the atmosphere, maybe we've got a chance. I just hold on to that. Well, I think that's a, that's a good note of optimism to end on. Where can uh, listeners find out more about your book? Oh, they can. Uh, it's on Amazon. So just go to Amazon and look for Star Chambers, The Race for Fusion Power. And it's on there. Or you can look at my website, which is melaniewindridge.co.uk. And you can find information about that and other books that I've written. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you, and you can always find more about Fusion and Fusion Industry Association at fusionindustryassociation.org. There's lots to learn and lots out there. Melanie, thanks for, for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>